0: Thank you all for being here, it's been a fun-filled day and I think the majority of you all have been with us the entire day. Started off the morning with some really dope folks um, with our our panel earlier, Um, went into the student panel that featured uh, some of our students here at MIT and also um, from Penn. Um, And so we're going to round out the day with the reason that we are here to celebrate It's the third installment of the the, um, Barbie Mortal Kombat series, Diversifying Barbie and Mortal Kombat. We have with us two of the editors from that amazing anthology that I was fortunate enough to be a part of. We have Gabriella Richard and Yasmin Kafai. Amazing folks, if you don't know them, follow them on Twitter, social media, and all that good stuff. Uh, Yasmine's a pretty prolific Twitterer. Tweeter, <laughs> what do you say? She says cool stuff, and I love it. She's amazing. I mean, t- tell you about them um, uh, a little bit. Um, Yasmine Kafai is a professor of learning sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a researcher and developer of tools, communities, and materials to promote computational participation, crafting, and creativity across K through 16. Her recent books include Connected Gaming, What Making Video Games Can Teach Us About Learning and Literacy, and Connected Code, Why Children Need to Learn Programming, An edited volumes such as Textile Messages, Dispatches from the World of Electronic Textiles and Education, and of course, Diversifying Barbie and Mortal Kombat. She co-authored the 2010 National Education Technology Plan for the United States Department of Education. Yasmin earned a doctorate in education from Harvard University while working with Seymour Pupper. I just wanted to say that fancier than what it needs to be. (laughs) 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 Pupper. At the Media Lab. She is a fellow of the American Educational Research Association and past president of the International Society for for the Learning Sciences. Gabriella Richard is an assistant professor of learning design and technology at Penn State University. Her research focuses on understanding the intersections between culture, experience, media, and learning, particularly in the areas of online and emerging technologies, including gaming. Her work is focused on understanding the ways that gender, race, ethnicity, and sexuality are defined and experienced in game culture and online gaming in order to inform inclusive and equitable designs for learning with serious games. As well as play and participation with gaming and emerging technology more broadly, she has written extensively about games and learning, as well as youth learning, engagement, and computational thinking with electronic textiles, game design, and online communities. She was an NSF Graduate Research Fellow and AAUW Dissertation Fellow, and a Postdoc Fellow for Academic Diversity at the University of Pennsylvania. I will sit down and let the shindig begin. Um, I'm going to just ask, post questions, kind of moderated a bit, um, but I will make sure to leave enough room and space open so other folks can chime into the conversation. And also feel free that if in any moment um, you want some clarification, more understanding, or if you want to chime in um, to the conversation, feel free to do so. Um, I, think it's, um, I think it's important and significant and that I would like for it to be as interactive as possible, but still I want to hear from our amazing scholars and friends, Yasmeen and Gabriella. I will go ahead and kick it off with the first question and hop on over here. Can you tell us why this book right now Well,
1: that's an interesting question. First of all, thank you for inviting us to be here today. Um, Well, there were multiple things going on. I think this book was in the making way before I was involved in it formally. But one of the things that brought me involved um, in this project was a lot of my feelings around the lack of attention paid to diverse experiences in gaming, particularly around race, me. So, reading the first two books, I was really inspired. I was very inspired by T.L. Taylor's piece, including women who are participating in gaming, how that had not been acknowledged. Um, but also, I felt like, as somebody who really uh, engaged in gaming from an early age and felt very inspired by uh, those kinds of play practices involved in gaming, that um, the stories of women like me, women of color, were not told at that time. And really trying to bring in a a diverse set of intellectuals who are beginning those conversations, such as you, of course, Kishana, Um, and also bringing out the relationships between representation and how that relates to the kinds of participation or lack of participation that we see in games. That connection had not quite been made yet. We had a lot of great work critiquing the lack of equitable participation and um, representation, sorry, not participation in games. And uh, we really wanted to make that linkage to why this is important, not only for education, I think that was our broad argument, but it's also important for culture for our collective cultural understandings around who's supported to play, who's supported to be in these institutions, and to continue their pathways even in these informal environments such as YouTube, which we had not really attended to, and now Twitch, of course, and Twitch being this big new media that has um, spawned its own celebrities. So really thinking about what that means in multiple pathways and, and making those connections more formally.
2: All oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going back a little bit uh, earlier, as uh, some of you might have heard. I mean, uh, TL Taylor and I we were all par- there present at the first panel, which took place 20 years ago. And about seven or eight years later, we were at the DeGra gaming conference. And we had that uh, there was a group of women kind of clustering around a table and making that observation. You know, there were all these panels with these guys arguing about games, you know, uh, narrative, nudology. And and then there was always this one panel around gender and games. That's where all the women were. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was kind of so shocking that we said, has nothing changed uh, since then? And... Uh, I remember, it was also in Vancouver, Henry being um, at that conference and I kind of cornered him in an elevator because I knew he couldn't escape and I said, Henry, would you mind if we kind of do a second (coughs) installment of Barbie to Mortal Kombat? Uh, Because we really think we need to kind of continue this conversation. Uh, You know, the the situation has changed, you know, it was the emergence of girl gamers, a, a girl uh, competition teams like the Fragg dolls with Morgan Romain were the rage of all the newspapers. And uh, but then when you came to those academic conferences, I mean, it felt like time stood still. So we uh, sat together, and you know, sometimes wonders uh, uh, intervene, and NSF gave us the money within six weeks. You know, this. Is not, this never happened so you know this was like magic <laughs> and we convened uh the what resulted in the second installment of uh, beyond barbie at mortal kombat you know we wanted to kind of keep the scene because barbie was still around mortal kombat was still around uh tl taylor justine henry a lot of people from the first meeting came but then also this growing group of people who were studying girl gamers and we had also quite an international uh, Uh, participation because gaming wasn't just happening in North America and Europe but also in Asia. Uh, And I remember those were still the days when E3, Electronic Entertainment Expo, had been, you know, we uh, actually scheduled the meeting and I have to say the president of E3 was always very welcoming. He gave me like 20 free exhibit passes. If you know how much each of those passes were, you know how much money. And uh, for that week, I was the most popular person on campus. I mean, there was a never-ending trail of people coming, you know, and they said, "You, you just pretend your mother named you as a girl because all the passes were for women and all the undergrads were male who wanted to go to the exit, and I rented a bus. And that took us from UCLA to downtown LA and discharged all those women. And I swear at that moment, I mean, the presence of women significantly increased uh, mm. at uh, E3. And, uh, and then the book kind of came together. And I think at that moment, uh, when the book came out, we realized uh, that something was missing. And so Brandisha Tynes, who is not here, who Uh, was uh, uh, one of my doctoral students who had studied extensively race in the internet and chat rooms and uh, said, why don't we kind of write another proposal? Now, you know, that magic only happened once. It didn't happen a second time. And so we wrote the proposal and then we kind of shelved it. You know, and time marched out until uh, Gabriela came and I, you know, this was kind of the impetus to revive the proposal and little did you know, um, there was another point of magic happening where we got the money again uh, within six weeks. I, I tell you, this is just <laughs> like, in, in a way it's interesting because, you know, it's talking about marginalized communities who usually don't get a lot of attention and there at least uh, from NSF, we got a lot of support. Uh, I mean, of course, it was focused more on the kind of educational opportunities. People, you also have to remember in 1997, games were evil. You know, uh, ga- games were not considered to be good learning uh, environments. I mean, there were all these issues of violence and stereotyping. And, Uh, But in 2008, uh, especially in 2015, the situation had changed. I mean, Jim G's book has come out, there's a serious gaming movement. People now talk openly, last week was an op-ed piece in the New York Times which started out describing how kids were designing games uh, on their iPads as an exemplary charter school. And I said, wow! I mean, it's now okay to actually talk about games, I mean, as something which is acceptable. So, I mean, we actually started all of this before Gamergate happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, know, what can you do? I mean, the the timing, I mean, it was definitely needed. The timing was right, but it Mm -hmm. was also a topic, I mean, as Gabriela said, we really hadn't paid attention to. And I think what is probably to me most shocking how long, I mean, this conversation uh, has been needed and has been going on. And it, it's still needed. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not like we've kind of addressed the challenge and we can move on to something else it's still there.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit, so you introduced three things that I want to make sure that, that we brought up. Gamergate, engagement with the industry, and also now with the conversations that we're having. Um, but I wanted to, to ask that, that kind of question, because I always get people kind of uh, ask all the time that you know we're still having these same old conversations about lack of diversity, what can we do. Um, tell, from, from both from your perspective, you've been in the game a minute, you know, and also from your perspective, you've know, get a bit of a different perspective, how have the conversations changed and are we having the right ones or are we asking the right questions? I always like asking, you know, folks like you all, what kinds of questions should we be asking and where should we be looking? Um, can, I, can I
2: touch on the middle? I mean, the conversation has changed. I mean, the big, biggest change, I mean... Um, I mentioned uh, just a moment ago is a serious gaming movement it is now uh, socially acceptable to think about games as learning environment and we still have some work to do but uh uh, in general uh, that, uh, uh, I mean, teachers use it in classroom and there's, you know, it's a quite active $1 billion industry, not quite as big as the leisure uh, part. And then there is esports. I mean, there's a whole culture emerging around of this. I think the second biggest change uh, is around uh, uh, the coding movement. Uh, I mean, 20 years ago when I started, I had this idea that kids could actually make their own games, you know, and uh, rather than just playing them uh, for learning. And, you know, this is also now one of the most popular activities to get kids into programming in many um Uh, online peer production. And and you have now a gigantic push to bring coding back into school. Unfortunately, it's kind of only connected to the conversation of college and career readiness. I think there is much more to games than just kind of train particular skill or provide content. But that is, I mean, a definite push. And I think it fits nicely with this new move where people look at gaming, not just at the play, but also at the kind of peripheral communities where there isn't just play, where there is also making. Uh, And to me, Minecraft is kind of this illustration where making and playing comes together, not just in the environment, but also around. And that is kind of, I think, the big game changer. Mm
1: And to segue off of that and related to this, a lot of digital participation, digital creation as opposed to consumption. Um, When I was a kid, I would have loved to have YouTube so that I could express all those music videos that I had in my head, right, that I really wanted to create myself. And now anyone can be a producer of their own content. But that's opened up a lot of um, pathways, uh, multiple pathways. A lot of them we see as productive, as ways to, critique the kinds of representation that are out there to um, to model positive behavior, but it can also model negative behavior, as we've seen, like with the recent incidents with PewDiePie, who's a big Let's Player, and, and how there was this uh, whole culture around trying to um, an outrage culture in a way, trying to out-outrage somebody else. (laughs) Uh, And as as we've seen, that's led to... Gamergate is part of that, too. So even though this happened post-Gamergate, a lot of Gamergate was capitalizing on the democratization of social media as a means to... Uh, I think, bring out some some really negative, like really dark sides of expression. And, and a lot of folks talk about anonymity around that, but yet we know that there are superstars that have arisen out of the Gamergate movement so far up that they're now even influencing major alt-right publications and, and venues and, and political discourse. So um, I think that's really... Those are the kinds of questions we need to start asking now. So I think making those connections to education were an important first step and some of the presentations that we saw today around looking at Minecraft communities. And I know Yasmin and I looked at the Scratch online content creation community and finding similar kinds of expression that are cultivated from from, uh, younger generations that are really influenced by the social media around them and even the more toxic elements of the social media around them. So finding new ways to talk about how we can, as educators, um, and in, as influencers, try to help cultivate and scaffold positive ways to express that creation online, and how can we use gaming media and other media as anchors towards that.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that I think has, has like emerged and kind of was discussed earlier is like how game studies is it's interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. but it's like still siloed. So it's mm. like siloed, but it's everywhere. You know, does, does, does that, that make sense? How can we, um, and I'm also thinking about some posts, posts that I saw from some prolific scholars that um, uh, about their experiences of still being ignored and still being invisible. So what kind of things can, can we do? Do you see this book as an intervention to kind of break down some of those barriers, or do you think, you know, this book will be siloed and put on the shelf next to my book? You know, <laughs> I mean, what, what do you think will, how can we break down those barriers? What kinds of conversations, what kind of spaces, what kinds of things can, can we do? So we're not invisible.
1: That's an interesting point. Well, it was interesting because earlier we were talking about the loss of GLS, the Games mm. Learning and Society Conference, which I think was a really great venue for bringing together um, people from different fields. It was very interdisciplinary, so bringing game study scholars with educational scholars. And um, and I think we need to have more venues like that. I think it's important uh, to some, in some dimension, it's important to silo to some degree. That that starts to bring up the whole conversation around supportive communities, right? So siloing can sometimes be uh, supportive. It can really help to build confidence. It can really, especially for groups that are often minoritized. But on the other hand, especially in the academy, we need to start finding ways to not only speak a lot more. Uh, to the public and as part of the public conversation, but also to each other. Uh, I often find that even presses help to Uh, exacerbate that, that they want to publish certain kinds of material or or coming from different um, disciplinary areas and I think not always seeing that there can be interdisciplinary connections and that's what was important about this book is that we really wanted to bring people from a variety of perspectives and fields and show that um, we're all very interconnected in our goals and in the kinds of change that we're trying to affect uh, and I think sometimes it's other departments and schools within the university that need to be influenced by this kind of critical discourse. So I think continuing to have those conversations and building bridges like this conference and, and continuing to create conferences that can have these discussions will be important.
2: I mean, in the book, uh, you know, you can get that for free, you don't have to buy that. Yeah. Uh, it's um, uh, a license under the Creative uh, Commons. Um, there are actually three great chapters on how people started the indie arcade, different games, Feminist in games, and how, I mean, even those venues can be redesigned uh, uh, um, to make them more inclusive. And I think so, those are kind of concrete lessons and examples which exist out there. So they're not uh, figments of uh, imagination. Uh, So that's definitely one step. And I think, you know, since I work more in the area of uh, younger uh, children, I mean, not anything goes. I mean, there's a certain libertarian kind of spirit uh, uh, in regard to uh, younger players, uh, and you know, those online communities are massive. Can you imagine that there are places where there are millions of, you know, eight to fourteen or fifteen-year-olds hanging out? This is unprecedented in our history. This has not happened before at this age group, and. So I think we need to really consider how can we kind of uh, create uh, structures and opportunities for kids to learn on how to be civil with each other without kind of completely, I mean, removing any agency. So it like becomes a pull-down menus. So you can't use any offensive words. Because, you know, of course, any smart 10 or 11-year-old knows exactly how to get, you know, you, how you, uh, bad words, you can separate them out uh, and then put the three people kind of your avatars right next to each other, can spell out nearly everything, you know. They know their weight around uh, chat filters very easily. Uh, I, I mean, so, so that's not the solution. A lot of commercial companies, unfortunately, have taken that road. But, I mean, uh, so how can we kind of model and create opportunities of, I mean, kids engaging themselves in community policing? Uh, their own communities without turning them into vigilantes. And uh, at scratch, you know, there was always a copycat police, when people kind of copied code without giving attribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of very vigorously uh, uh, followed uh, mm-hmm. as our members. So I, I think that we have a certain responsibilities, and uh, the companies who run these massive uh, environments who host them also have that responsibility so, that we actually create gamers, because I think it's also a result that there is very little. And then, you know, I mean, once kids, people come, uh, young adults, I mean, uh, all hell breaks loose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I know you had brought up, um, I, I didn't, I didn't anticipate to kind of talk about Gamergate, but I think Gamergate was kind of, we into one of the questions. I know the book came at a moment where there was like, um, but well, there's a lot of pushback to some of the critical engagement that, that, that we all do in gaming. Um, what kind of resistance, I guess, you know, not even like public uh, resistance did you receive, but even maybe like academic resistance, like in locating like a press and, um, um, and when the public became aware of this collection of these social justice warriors, you know, kind of like what was some of the, the, the backlash that, that you all received? Um, with trying to get this this book out there when you got it out there?
2: Mm. Uh, I, I didn't receive any backlash <laughs> and, and, and Drew Davidson from ETC Press was more than... Uh, happy uh, uh, to uh, publish this. I know uh, Gabriela uh, actually was uh, found a Reddit, kind yeah. of. Uh, it was a little babbling. And you know, they were too lazy to read the book. I mean, what could yeah, you do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think after scouting all those DIGRA archives for the <laughs> feminist articles, say, they've kind of given up. <laughs> yeah.
1: So apparently we ended up on Gamergate's radar, but we didn't find out until seven months later. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, were, we we were on a subreddit, and apparently, real peer review—some Twitter hashtag that goes through and mines through articles uh, and sort of pulls out the parts that support their argument, even though they're often very decontextualized from anything in the text. Uh, so, apparently, if you go under real peer review, you can see our gamer gay review. <laughs> Not that I would um, support that, but um, the pushback I really think was uh, in different viewpoints of what it means to think about diversity, and what it means to not essentialize. I think there are various points of view, um, disciplinary points of view, but also um, different scholarly points of view um, held by different academics, and I think that sometimes there were some interesting conversations that evolved around that, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a pushback so much as trying to strengthen our collective understanding around what diversity and inclusivity means.
2: That's a very nice way of talking about (laughs) fractioning of uh, the academic community in different (laughs) camps, and... uh, but that's true. I mean, you uh, you have different conferences now. Uh, you know, before 20 years ago, there weren't any conferences. You know, every few years there was a small meeting, uh, like the one in, in 1997 here. Uh, and then you had about two dozen people, and it was always the same people because nobody else was doing research, huddling around the tables and <laughs> discussing the dire state of video games and, you know, seeing on one hand the industry growing and the significance, but on the other hand, academics just not willing as a larger academia with a topic. and. Uh, And I think what's happening now, I mean, the, the area is so rich, I mean, there's so much going on. And so you have all those different silos now where people kind of discuss their respective topics. So in a way, we have traded the unity which we had where everybody was around the same table, Uh, into those kind of pockets of discussion. I think uh, not so much in the book, but during the workshop where everybody came together, that really became uh, apparent that people have staked out their territory. And I can maybe say that you know, because I'm uh, being an educator and having used games for making uh, and kind of studied that from that perspective, I kind of thought, oh, this is very interesting, you know, what's kind of transpiring here. And so maybe uh, in the coming years, we have to kind of work on kind of creating those intersectional conversations again, rather than to just sit in our respective corners. Mm One other um, that's my, my, my
0: perspective. I yeah, mean, I agree. Great. You had talked earlier about um, industry engagement, and I know um, that's been very significant to a lot of folks like in, in our in our careers. How how important um, is that, do you think, that we um, engage beyond just academic settings and academic spaces? I mean you you mentioned you know some academic conferences, but <clears> then <throat> you also mentioned like E three. Um kind of talk about like the importance of those spaces and um, how welcome we are in those spaces, because I haven't ventured into a lot of them. The registration fees are crazy, so I, I haven't gone. So we kind of talk a little bit about you know why it's important for us to be, be in those spaces as well.
1: Well, I think it's important for a variety of reasons. One, to understand the conversations that are going on. So as part of um, my dissertation work, uh, I was funded to go to a couple of GDCs, and this was back in 2010 and 2011. And I have to say, and that's actually where I met uh, Shanae Bryant, uh, who's featured in her book. She's a, a black woman. Woman developer in the games industry, and that's where I first met her. And it was so funny because she was doing her head headcounts thing, which she does every <laughs> year, and I think that year she counted eight black women who were at the conference, including myself. And that was also the year that I learned about Jerry Lawson because they have um, a black uh, game developers association and there were only about seven or eight of us in the room me me, feeling like an imposter because it was my first GDC and I was there to be a researcher and I was sort of roped into this larger conversation, like, look, here's this up-and-coming game developer, <laughs> you know, anyway. But it was interesting to meet Jerry Lawson because it was actually a time when they discovered his history. They pulled him out of the archives mm-hmm. and he since then passed away. I think he actually passed away a few months after that GDC. And um, for those of you who who may or may not know who Jerry Lawson is, he was a black engineer. He created the first uh, cartridge-based console system that worked well, the Fairchild F, from which uh, Atari and other systems derived. But yet his history was lost, and they pulled him out of the archives. So being part of those conversations and being able to... um, to bring up that history, to have a presence as academics not only to have our own silo within GDC, but to influence the conversations that are happening at, happening at GDC. And I know there's been more of a movement to do that amongst academics now. There's also um, the learning and educational games branch of the International Game Developers Association that's really trying to move the conversation forward around education. A lot of these debates that we're having around um, critical games and inclusivity. So. I think we need more of a presence, but we also need to be careful not to be uh, excluded in our own sub-community within those spaces, because I have to say, as a young black woman uh, at, GDC, at GDC, the first time I went, I felt very excluded. Yeah. Uh, developers did not want to talk to me. Um, it, was, it was
2: very isolating. I mentioned this earlier already. I think the industry has a responsibility. And when I uh, look at uh, what's available, and again, I'm talking more from the kind of game making side, I mean, the kind of DIY mentality, Uh, uh, what's available you'll find uh, that there is a lot of possibilities to put up something but very little to kind of share to kind of engage in the social networking I think which A lot of older people very much appreciate being part of the community, and I wonder why that is happening, you know, why this is not supported. uh, As much, of course, it also is more cumbersome. You have to kind of engage people, uh, provide support, and, but I think we're also, by the same token, depriving uh, younger gamers and use. I mean, from important uh, uh, learning experiences, uh, because it's not just the production itself, uh, but also the participation. I mean, I, I recently kind of went back to the work which I did here, actually, just in the building uh, uh, one or two blocks away at the MIT Media Lab when I had a uh, uh, um, in a school here in Boston, children design all these games and, and said, you know, I mean, this was a study I did uh, 20 years ago, I didn't know how to write, but now I know how to write books. And I really think we kind of need to look uh, at bringing these two communities of playing and making games together. Because a performative aspect which you have in playing games to kind of, uh, der- there you derive a lot of learning and experience, uh, Um, that is also something which needs to be part of making games. You can't just make a game uh, and then, you know, somebody needs to play this, somebody needs to provide feedback. And I think likewise in, in playing games, you know, the modding games, the kind of Uh, constructive element is now equally present and uh, so we really need to kind of work on bringing those two together. I think you know that's an academic argument but I mean with Minecraft we have a commercial realization there and I'm very curious to see what in the coming years will kind of happen in this environment as kind of Microsoft is pushing out its EDU channel I mean they already have done that I mean it's a worldwide phenomenon and how much of that actually will be realized. Uh, Will this be kind of entirely rely on kind of some uh, volunteers or how much kind of... uh, uh, industry support will be uh, Microsoft willing to kind of help realize these communities. I say all of that, I also, with my colleagues here at uh, MIT, I helped develop Scratch the Community, which is the world's largest used programming community, and I know um, what goes on behind the scenes in order to make that a conducive and responsible environment. And I think so that's why, I mean, to come back to your question and also what Gabriela said, the inclusivity needs to happen on all sides, within the industry, uh, within the design and production, and as well as the running of the communities, which are an, I mean, an essential part of all the gaming. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: You brought up some of the other hats that, that you wear, some of your other research. Why don't I talk a little bit about that? Because you both are more than just this book. You know, I want to make sure that folks know that, you know, how prolific you all are. You know, I know, you know, Gabriella, you know, some of your work on, you know, supportive community, stereotype there, you know, that's been really influential in my work. So um, talk a little bit about like where your research is now. What are you doing now? What what does your stuff look like?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. So uh, there's, there's a few different veins to my work. So continuing to look at the dimensions of support that can be fostered through different online communities. Um, at this stage in the game, I'm looking more at Twitch and eSports. And I'm very interested in what's happening in collegiate eSports, especially. Mm-hmm. Because um, I, I don't know how familiar everyone is with collegiate eSports here, but so electronic sports, gaming as spectator sport, has been around for as long as, as uh, games have been around. I mean, even pre-digital games, but let's just talk about digital games. There were all sorts of competitions back in the arcade days, and but it's kind of had its own rise and fall, and TL has written a wonderful book about, about that. But with the current wave of um, <laughs> what's happening in Twitch and electronic sports now, uh, we're starting to see that universities are beginning to adopt that model of gaming as a spectator sport and trying to build out their own electronic sports programs, some to varying degrees. Penn State, for example, is not really bought on in, in the same way as other universities and, and some of the members of our esports community are not happy about that. But it's been very interesting to see how different universities are adopting different models around this, but also how whether you're in a, in a university model that is supporting collegiate Esports as part of the NCAA or not, you're still seeing a lot of those manifestations that we've talked about, about the lack of equitable access and diversity. But also, there are a lot of um, interesting patterns around the ways that Uh, collegiate players engage in learning and mastery and sharing their knowledge and so that's been interesting to explore and that's something that I'm working on with a couple of grad students now and then continuing to look at ways that we can make um, technology and learning about design and uh, more inclusive on multiple levels so Uh, thinking about ways that we can work with uh, new and emerging digital and physical toolkits and the makers movement and how uh, learners can um, engage in various interests that they have and also hack their own biases around what it means to be uh, involved in computing and what it means to be an expert in those ways. So really thinking about... How you can combine a, a variety of maker tools and um, engage youth on, in teams to, to bring out the best attributes of what they do well as a way of, of increasing diversity in, in some of the youth participation.
2: I'm, I'm working on diversifying computing, <laughs> so uh, that has always been my goal when I started out with children making games, to my surprise girls actually liked making them. Um, so one area I'm doing, and I, and I, I decided since now uh, it's kind of also, f- you know, games weren't fashionable, but now it's fashionable to do programming in school again, and that wasn't for 20 years I lived in a basement. and. Uh, uh, cool. talk to a wall, and <laughs> uh, but now it's uh, moving into schools, and I'm thinking, yes, games are great, but there's many more things you can make with code. So one area I've kind of focused on in working with colleagues uh, is around electronic textiles variables. It comes under the umbrella of uh, Leah Beakley, who was here at the MIT Media Lab, developed LilyPad Lilliput Arduino, a suitable microcontroller with LEDs and sensors, and so we're actually—I can't actually believe this—in uh, uh, working with a group in Los Angeles, and we are in LA Unified, which is the second-largest school district in the country. And right now, at this very moment, hundreds of students in underserved schools uh, stitching their way—I mean—to code. Uh, we actually designed a curriculum, because I figured if I—I uh, want to kind of uh, provide something which uh, teachers and students can actually use in school and. Uh, And so these maker activities happen in (coughs) classrooms with 45 uh, students sometimes, which I find absolutely amazing, and teachers, I mean, actually use these projects to teach students not just about engineering circuit design, but also about key computational concepts. So by the end of the summer, uh, we promised this as part of the last White House release will actually make the curriculum freely available. It runs under Exploring Computer Science, which is a larger introductory high school course. Uh, And then we'll plan some follow-up projects. And by that time, we'll have thousands of students who actually have run that. And so this is the first time I'm really moving, if you want, out of academia into a school setting and creating products which teachers and students can use as an example that a lot of the ideas we often talk about actually can be implemented in classrooms. Uh, And then I I decided, you know, I'm kind of starting a whole new thing around synthetic biology on kind of design, I call it making with wet stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) So um, I'm doing... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you need to kind of sum this up in three words for people. So the the idea, I mean, there's a lot of uh, interesting developments. I mean, Adidas, for instance, uh, last November revealed uh, they're going to produce their first sneaker designed with biosteel. North Face uh, has a jacket uh, designed with uh, silk uh, from a Japanese company, and all of those are actually synthetically created uh, 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 materials from from cells. And I'm thinking this is a very interesting approach, very much actually related to coding. It's just you code with different materials. Mm-hmm. You know, you use a different coding set and what are the ways uh, we can actually engage students not just to kind of learn about science by studying nature, but actually using their understanding to design new materials and applications. Uh, and so this me, you know, my my biology level is kind of high school and 30 years old. So I have kind of some catching up to do. Um, but it's it's very kind of a very interesting approach uh, to uh, bring again kind of design efforts, uh, making students not just kind of learning content and skills, to also figuring out concrete applications. That's amazing. That's awesome.
0: I promise I'm going to wind down so other folks can ask questions. (laughs) I'm just going to ask two more, and I'm going to open it up to everybody else. So, Yasmeen, what advice would you give yourself if you were in this space, in this area, 20 years ago, the original conference? What advice would you give your 20 year ago self?
2: Oh, I, I did it. Stick it out. I mean, um, I left uh, MIT to go to UCLA in 1994, so this conference was in 1997. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I went to UCLA, I mean, the first advice I got from my mentoring committee, you know, when you become a junior faculty member, you have these senior people said, oh, you can't write about games. You know, you'll never get tenure. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I sick. mean, yeah. um, so uh, first, I disbanded the mentoring committee because I thought <laughs> that devi- that advice was not really good. And I still proceeded to write, I mean, the book uh, and to write, I mean, lots of chapters and articles about the topic because, I, I mean, I had worked with children, and I knew this was important. And I think sometimes you just have to, to stick it out. Okay. Uh, and I think that's probably true for a lot of other academics too, that topics, I mean, wax and wane in how they are important. And it takes a lot of time for senior colleagues to sometimes uh, catch up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Now Gabriella, so in twenty years, twenty years from now, <laughs> with the release of the future of Barbie, and Gork, I'm bad. no.
3: <laughs> what
0: conversations are you, are we having? What are we, mm, what are we saying? What are you telling yourself then? What's what's happening 20, 20 years from now?
1: Well. Wow. I, I am not sure what the landscape is going to be like 20 years from now, especially what's been going on in the past few months. But um, that being said, I think one of the conversations that we're not having right now that I hope starts to be included a bit more is around accessibility. Mm-hmm. So we know that there's Able Gamers, which is a very strong group of gamers out there who are changing the ways that developers understand accessibility. But... Um, I think there needs to be more of this recognition that accessibility is an an important part of inclusivity. Um, So engaging more in those conversations, and also I really hope that we continue um, this movement around what it looks like, what computing, what games look like, and who's involved in those games. Like, what is a game, really, right? So we have this whole movement around games as art. And, and thinking and continuing to push those boundaries is, is what I hope will happen. Awesome. Continuing to queer games.
0: Right? Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. All right, good deal. OK, let's open it up. I know some of you folks have, have questions. So please, let's fire away. Should we mic them? Do we have more mics? So what else do we do? is I'm going to move this <coughs> here. OK. OK. I'll keep talking. I'm selfish like that. I know that um, whenever I had the opportunity to bring people in, I always bring folks in that I want to talk to and have conversations with. So I'm not worried about none of y'all. i will sit here and keep talking to these amazing folks. Absolutely. But I didn't know if there were any comments or thoughts, any kinds of questions that you all have in general. I do. I want to ask uh, another question. I wanted to um, uh, ask a little bit about some of the, because you all, I don't know how much like you were able to like, control content, because you can't control what people send in, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some things that, that you uh, wish were included in, in the text, in the anthology? I know you talked about like, accessibility, mm-hmm. and so talk, talk about some of the things that you wish were there and wish were present in, in this text. I think uh,
1: one of the areas uh, that was a little bit uh, needed a little bit more fleshing out, I think, was around um, the policy implications and moving forward and what we're going to do around uh, educational opportunities around uh, critical gameplay and. I think I would have wanted to have some more contributions around that and some more discussions around the role of, for example, um, stereotype threat, I know I talked about that in my chapter, but I think really expanding upon that and the possibilities and the solutions and uh, looking a little bit more at the communities that are out there making those connections and those solutions, not just from an academic
2: point of view. I think, you know, the topics which were actually discussed at the earlier panel around sexuality, uh, Mm -hmm. that was kind of, I mean, um, starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. I also think, you know, I would have loved to see more about younger kids. Mm -hmm. You know, a little pet peeve of mine that the gamers uh, studies often Preference study their own ilk. I mean, because that's most acceptable. and you know, if you have to spend so much time uh, uh, becoming knowledgeable uh, of a community and environment and keep up, I mean, it's very hard uh, uh, to do. Um, and you know, it's much harder to do to hang out with twelve-year-olds. You know, that's not necessary, or even younger kids. And and so we know comparatively much less. Uh, about those, we know that these kids are all—I mean—gaming uh, in various ways like crazy. Uh, so I mean, that I mean is a part I mean which you know um, needs to kind of complement uh, what uh, game studies in general uh, is uh, is kind of lacking. And then I think we had a few pieces kind of discussing gamer gate, but I mean it. it Maybe this is also something better to be done afterwards, I mean, after all of this is over, to kind of unpack what, what happens there. But, uh, you know, these books are kind of great snapshots in time. You know, there's enough time between each to kind of take stock on where we are. Uh, And I think the the collection, the anthology, kind of captured that moment in time, and then whoever, you know, maybe the next one. It actually doesn't happen very often in academia, it's very interesting, not just in game studies, that you have these kind of uh, taking stock of a moment in time where a field uh, is, where the discussion is. and. Uh, and, and having these linkages to kind of the, the past and looking forward. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome.
3: Yes, questions? I don't know whose hand was who's up here. Go ahead. Sorry, hi. Um, Yasmin, you talked earlier on, this, you touched on the importance of teaching young kids how to be civil in games, but also online. Uh, like in practical terms, how do you propose to do that? Uh,
2: that's a, Good question, because one of our doctoral students, Gilly Dishon, just recently did a whole study on, on civics and, and gaming. And you know, there's a big, in the games for change moving, uh, movement of uh, uh, creating games, uh, whether it's stuff or it's dying or, I mean, but there's also the argument to be made that uh, what you learn by just playing games, when you, for instance, organize in guilds, actually, uh, where you practice civics, so he actually went kind of from uh, playing games to, to making games and it wasn't just about teaching you civics in the sense, you know, how the society works and all of that, but he really had this idea, you know, we can even look at the acts of collaboration and interaction as kind of forms of micro civics. You know, civics isn't just, I mean, a topic to be learned, it's also something which needs to be practiced every day. And he comes from a perspective, he's a philosopher, uh, who, who is Israeli and has kind of studied very intently the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he says, you know, Uh, We can argue all day long in the way we have to kind of practice on a daily basis. So he was looking for opportunities in, for instance, making collaborative game controllers where both the design as well as the play required collaboration as a way to practice what he called the habits of civics uh, on a daily. And I thought this was a very interesting proposal because in the Serious Games movement, we have kind of focused very much on teaching you about civics, and that's, you know, that's important too, but what about the kind of daily practice in, engaging in civics, essentially practicing what you preach, uh, and and where game play and making uh, can kind of play a role for this. So I thought that was a very kind of uh, interesting proposal from a different side to look at that.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: There's also some work around culturally responsive computing or critical computing. And I think uh, that's a nice model as well. It's often replicated within an environment where you're with youth one-on-one and working in groups, whether it's in the classroom or in an informal setting, but you're helping to model those healthy pathways. So they're not only having role models um, that look like them that are engaged in computing and engaged in game making, but you also have Uh, Them deconstruct their own identities around gaming, deconstruct the representations, um, deconstruct even the communities of practice that are going on, and uh, developing their own responses to that. But one of the proposals that we had when um, critiquing the Scratch online community was finding ways that we could Uh, try to scaffold that within the communities themselves. So how are some, how can we put in prompts, how can we put in different kinds of um, ways that that encourage people to reflect on the ways that they're responding to each other, the ways that they're representing race, culture, sexuality, um, into these communities themselves. So it's not a matter of moderating policing, it's more about how you model
0: healthy behavior. Yeah, yeah. I I like the idea of thinking of these books as kind of snapshots
2: of what the field is talking about at the moment. I know in my own work, interviewing people, people themselves are often uh, cultural critics and do kind of vernacular analysis. And there are things that motivate them and their own interests
0: and criticisms. So I'm curious, since you both work with young people, do you have a sense of what right now Young gamers are
2: themselves thinking about critically in this space. Um, do you hear concerns about diversity and inclusion? Are these just kind of concerns from above, or do you actually? What are young people animating those critical
1: conversations as well? well I think so. So in the in the workshops, uh, teaching. Um, specifically game design and how to use different maker materials, they would often reflect on that. I, I don't think it was always the first thing that they would reflect on, but over time, especially when um, we would, they would start engaging in their own game making, hence why this is so important, um, particularly because I think um, we were very intentional with trying to scaffold that kind of uh, cultural relevancy in our workshops, they started to really reflect on the fact that there wasn't a lot of diversity, and uh, but these would be things that they would say, not necessarily at first, and I think your point about looking over time at how uh, participants' reflections change over time is important, uh, really hit home to me, because it also could be feeling more comfortable with our presence there within the space, but uh, those would sometimes come up, but then I also think the whole outreach culture is there too, and and there's often idols that are formed, and and some people feeling like, oh, this isn't something you should be concerned about.
2: That's a really interesting uh, a question, because I, I guess from, from an education perspective, we are often so focused uh, 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 to get uh, students computationally engaged and up to leave that this kind of critique part, I would say, probably falls a little bit to the wayside. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that often, uh, you know, conventions are are just kind of accepted as is. And I, I mean, one concrete example I have when in Ninety four five, I, I worked with an interactive television company. Yes, there was interactive television. Yes, <laughs> there was a moment in time, and they actually hired me to uh, work with kids on games, and I conducted like all these interviews about ideas. And after three days, I said, I have all these ideas. You always ask questions, you know, and then the learner has to give answers. And I said, how about making a game for somebody else to learn where there is no question? And I, I got this like, you know, what? I thought we were supposed to ask questions. And it just occurred to me in that moment that, I mean, there was this rhetoric I hadn't even considered about, the stereotype about teaching being about asking questions and learning about giving answers. And I think there are a lot of these things which just are kind of embedded in the activities and if we we don't kind of take a, a step back, they just get reified, I mean, over and over again, because nobody kind of, and you know, it was very interesting when I said, okay, now I have a challenge for you, make a game and you cannot ask a question, and there was this moment of resistance, and then the kids came up with these amazing ideas, and I thought it was already all there, it just kind of, I mean, we needed to create a space for them, you know, we needed, to make room, I mean, for these other models of ideas, uh, and and for me this is always, I mean, stuck as as an example that we need to do things like that more often, I mean, to be, uh, because otherwise, you know, a lot of things which are just part of daily practice kind of just get carried over and over again.
3: Um, I have a question about, do you know if there are any games about building a game industry? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really curious about, uh, because I think it's really important all the work that has been done critiquing representation. But what would it mean for kids or anybody to actually design and build a game industry within a game universe. And um, it seems like that would be another way of dealing with um, structures of exclusion, uh, inclusivity and exclusivity, issues of access, um, teaching people at a very young age how to think about the the, the structural conditions uh, that enable a gaming industry to exist. And I didn't know if that's, I'm not really, I don't know much about game studies, but I'm very interested in it, but it's not my area of expertise, so I just thought I would ask you
1: aware of that. That, That's a great question. I'm actually not aware of a game that allows you to build the game industry, but I do know that for a while, construction games were a big rave, right? And so I used to play this game called the movies. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. Uh, and I, I still play it sometimes. But you could build your own movie studio. <laughs> I hate to say it's really antiquated graphics now, but um, anyway, I, I actually like that act of uh, reenacting what it means to create a movie studio and to really think about what is the perspective of, of somebody who runs this studio and how are they perceiving their actors, because your actors become expendable if they're not, Um, if they're not like superstars or if they're not continuing to make money and then and then what what public perception goes into what movies you create, because all of that is embedded within the game, so you're churning out certain movies during certain time periods. So for those of you that don't know the movies game, it starts in the 1920s, and it goes all the way up to modern times, and then at different points in time, you're told that different movies are considered to be popular. So you wanna create those movies, but then you have these actors, you're managing the studio, and you're managing staff. So I I think that would be an interesting investigation, but I think with all of these games, what what we know about learning with games is that mindfulness is so important. So you would still have to have this external piece that's somehow prompting learners to be really mindful in their play, because sometimes uh, it's very easy to get wrapped up in other details if if you're not, you know, you're not gonna necessarily learn those lessons from that game unless you're really purposefully looking for them.
2: Great you know, when you you brought that up, it reminded me of cultural uh, differences in games. And uh, let me take an example: the sports game here in the United States, it's all about the players. In Germany, the soccer games are all about being the coach. Mm. And, and and you know, when I heard about that, I thought that was so interesting. I mean, uh, that uh, in another country where sports is equally popular, mm. I mean, if not even more. Uh, but there the whole gameplay was not about being the player you wanted to be the coach who put the team together and um, so I think the models are actually out there but it also showcases again this kind of cultural preference for I mean I don't know who in, I mean in sports game decided uh, that it had to be all about the player because obviously it can also I mean these games can also be configured in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, forgive me if I misunderstood um, but did you say that um, people shouldn't academics shouldn't be writing about Gamergate until after it's over? Oh no, sorry. I I we actually have chapters in the book which okay. talk about it, but I think sometimes when you want to kind of deconstruct an event uh, uh, especially, uh, yes, you can write about it while it's happening right away, uh, but uh, maybe also sometimes you want to wait a moment and take stock what has happened to see all the ramifications. So there are several chapters where people actually, uh, from very different perspectives, uh, talked about the ramifications of the uh, yeah, No, no, no. Okay. Sorry. That was no, that's okay. <laughs> Do you know, is there anything being written about um,
1: how it is impacting young children? Especially since so many children are the ones consuming like like YouTube content made about games, and these ideas are are spread so freely there. And I think because parents to be removed only from like the games that kids are playing, but like the fan made media about those games is an even further abstraction. Like, is anybody writing about how that's impacting the kids and their worldview and their ability to critically about games? Well, I think somebody should be. Um, I'm not. I'm not aware of people looking specifically at youth. Um, There have been a few folks that have analyzed uh, YouTube comments and and YouTube communities and how Gamergate has affected a variety of discourses around YouTube. I've seen some popular news articles around it, Mm -hmm. um, New York Times and others, but Uh, I think that is an area that needs a lot more exploration and deconstruction. And I think both of us in our work, we try to address that. So our study, we did a study uh, last year looking at the Scratch online community and some of the influences of movements like Gamergate on the kinds of discourses that were happening even within an environment that's supposed to be supportive around youth game making and um, media content creation. So I think, there are those of us that are looking at this, and we are finding that there are influences, and those influences aren't necessarily good, but I, I think there needs to be more.
2: Yeah, I mean, after this initial euphoric phase of uh, discovering youth social media, I mean, Dana, Boyd, and others have written extensively about that, I, I, I think, uh, uh There's now a little bit more backlash, in in a sense happening where people kind of uh, look at some of the bullying which has happened, this is one of the areas where you will find some of those more critical studies, so it's less about gaming, but more about social interactions. But you know, on one hand, I mean, you can look at Gamergate as a form of extreme bullying, I mean, where people are kind of decided to really run down, uh, uh, certain people with threats and every uh, everything else. Uh, it's just adults doing it, and not uh, kids. And kids can be as cruel. And by the way, this is nothing new. If you go back in the history of childhood and play, there always has been rough and tumble play. Uh, there has been meanness. Uh, maybe in in different forms. I mean, childhood 100 years ago wasn't all nice and rosy. I mean, there was a lot of um, violence uh, as well, and girls also have been violent, maybe not physically, but uh, using, I mean, language as a way. Uh, Candy Goodwin has written extensively about this, about the hidden life of girls. so I think these, these topics, you know, don't make just a sudden ex- uh, appearance, they have already been present. But sometimes, I think things like social media can amplify it. I think GamerGate has shown to what, what uh, impact the, the, the amplification uh, can have. And that, that was the kind of piece which was new. Mm-hmm. We can do it all, if you want to see, let's do it. <laughs> Put you
0: work. Yeah. I'm just sitting here
1: thinking about the games that I play and the games that the people I know play and it's mostly like Candy Crush, mm-hmm. Snake, stuff like that and then I was watching Oprah, um, you know, her
0: network and she has a commercial because she just came out with a game mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering how these games
2: um, fit into um, issues of gender in gaming. Mm -hmm. and whether or not that's getting sufficient coverage in scholarly work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mia Gonzalo is, for instance, studying, um, and you know, I like, it's called casual gaming. I I like the naming, you know, it's different from hardcore. And Mia was actually, I think, uh, who did one of those studies to show if you add up all the time, I mean, you find uh, that women also spend quite extensive time playing these casual games, Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so, it's as much serious business as uh, the other ones. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. fact, a little
1: bit more business because I think they find that casual games generate a lot more money yeah. because of all of the ways that they've set up the pay structure. So, you end up buying things to pay to play those games and to play them um, in a more efficient way or to kind of uh, get through the game faster. Um, but yeah, I think earlier we actually had a question as well around where does casual gaming fit into all of, all of this. And I, I think it's interesting because we have created, we, we do have these implicit biases around what gaming is. And I think part of Gamergate and the backlash of Gamergate was that there was a very static notion of what gaming was. And, and wanting to diversify and be more inclusive of different kinds of play, what it means to be a gamer, who was playing, actually was met with this backlash of trying to define what gaming is, which was then going back to these, what's considered AAA, uh, major studio franchise games, and that's really gaming, and, and, and so it's, I, I think there's always been this tension, but I think uh, those in the academic world view g- all kinds of games as games. Um, and I think partly because we are um, querying the whole notion of what a game is, that's part of where this backlash has been too. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm big about plugging the work of super folks in the field. Yeah. Shira Chess, S-H-I-R-A Chess, she does like a lot of work. I know with um, the stuff that she does on Diner Dash, mm-hmm. like looking at that, the labor, <laughs> the, the actual labor that, that goes into it. I remember like reading one, one of her pieces and it was, um, Talking about essentially how women are roped back into the work that we wanted to get away from, or something. I you was know, so like um, in the kitchen cooking, making pizzas, you know, like things like that. So it was a pretty. It was I'm mean, not totally butchered, you know, her work, but it's really, it's really amazing, you know, some of the stuff that she's doing. So there are there are scholars out there that are doing work. Yeah, yeah
2: just to kind of you know go back. I mean, to think about when um, as uh, uh, from Barbie to Martha Cumber came out. It came out at a time when there was the first successful piece of software Barbie Fashion Designer. And it shattered all the records and the notion that girls, I mean, you know, supposedly weren't interested in using computers and games. So fast forward 20 years to now, in some ways we still have the same kind of, I mean, uh, negative attitude to its game. I mean, then it was all pink. Now um, you have the, the casual games, I mean, so we still, I think, relegate women's game playing I mean to the margins rather than to see it as a <coughs> important part of the gaming landscape. So. Um,
3: yeah, hi. Um, I think you're doing a really really important thing, so thank you for that. I think it's pretty much needed. Just maybe on a positive note, uh, I'm, I'm gonna make a quick comment on yeah, diversity in DIGRA. Um, two years ago, in Germany, the, in 2015, there was a panel on video games and philosophy. And on that panel, there were seven white guys. And somebody raised that question actually during the panel and it got really angry. So they were like, maybe, yeah. quite defensively playing on, hey, but maybe I feel something that I'm not, but it was like, so that got ugly, Uh, two years later, so (laughs) um, last year at the DIGRA, uh, there was a need to create a diversity group, that group is working, I think, so we'll see this year in Australia whether the diversity group has assembled and whether yeah, things have been done. So that's just like a little, mm-hmm. on a positive note, a little story. But also, in, um, I reminded myself of um, a festival, and I think that positive move towards diversity and different communities is not as much seen in the gaming industry as such. It's not as much seen in academia, maybe, but in the avant-garde games, very much so. So there is a festival called LA's. It's in Berlin every year. It's quite international, and this is where you really see for the first time, I think, a gaming community that really can be different. Transsexuals, uh, um, people of all races and, and, and colors and backgrounds, and it's really uh, non-commercial, so it's very kind of underground. But it's massive. It's really, really a lot of people. And just to like bring it up, uh, up, they have a magazine which is available online. It's called MAs Magazine. And there's three issues only. The first one was on women and gaming, the second one is about black and it's on um, uh, game designers in Africa. And there's a Johannesburg version of the maze as well, and the third one has a signal of Death, so I don't know what uh, haven't declared it yet. So I think there's some stuff going on, you're part of it, of this kind of greater need, the need is there, and so yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. Thank
1: you for bringing that up, because there have been multiple efforts, like uh, the queer Gaming Con, and um, different games, and yeah, Indiecade. Also, uh, I'm working with a doctoral student now, who's from West Africa, and there's a big movement uh, wage in Africa, the West African Gaming Expo, So I think a lot of our conversations have to become more international and more inclusive of all of the different ways that people are diversifying gaming. Um, I'm also happy that you brought up Digger in 2015. I was there that year and oh I, I remember we missed it, each other I remember it intimately because that was right after that was when Gamergate went after digger. So oh. <laughs> and, and for those of you that don't know, um, it was only uh, recently that Gamergate started trying to... Uh, go after academic circles, and it was mainly mm-hmm. in response to that 2015. Oh yeah, yeah I was on the yeah. opening,
3: so I was <laughs> <with the> organizers <laughs> of that one interview yeah. back then, and we did get some weird emails and something we thought it's like bots trying to uh, hack the system Yes. We sure. <laughs> so there was. Yeah, there was some good things happening. And yeah, I
1: was on a flight back, and when I got back, I would, you know, there were all of these. Yeah. I was all
0: over GamerGate's, like, Twitter, because, of, anyway, it's, it was
1: very yeah, that interesting, was it was, was,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's get one more, and then we're gonna have to start moving out of those things, go ahead. So I guess the question
3: is, um,
0: in terms of, like, studying gaming and inclusivity um, in terms of gender, how much, like, how many initiatives are there for, to have more men? Participate is kind of some of the questions I'm like, I'm kind of wondering like, is there like a preaching to choir kind of situation, and, or like, in what ways are you guys kind of, or not necessarily just you, but how are men being um, more inclusive and in, I guess diversification from that perspective?
2: Okay. Great, great, great topic. It's actually interesting when you look at the literature on how much there is on, on girls and women, and then how little we actually know about gaming. We probably also have a stereotype of what, I mean, the male gamer looks like.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there must be a probably equally diversity, uh, not just because there's a larger number historically, but, I mean, in what uh, uh, men or young boys are interested in in playing. So there are some studies, but it's really uh, uh, very under research.
1: Yeah, and I think part of that uh, goes back to what we think of what our biases are when we think of gender. Mm -hmm. One of our main biases is we think women. And in fact, that was an interesting thing that came out of going around at GDC a few years ago and, and just interviewing developers. What do you think about uh, gender and gaming? And the first thing they would say is, well, women do such and such and such and such. And so it's so embedded in in our psyche that when we think gender studies, we think women's studies. And, and even then, we're not even thinking about queer studies. You know, And that's starting to become part of the conversation now. Um, so. And that was something that I wrote about in my chapter and something that I know that myself and many others in the field are starting to look at as well. Like, how do we start to deconstruct men's experiences? In fact, we have a chapter in here as well about that, and um, that was...
2: uh, it seems so. Yeah, Benzine She has actually that. done quite extensive work around African American uh, male youth and gaming, and that there is this really interesting connect that they game, play games for very different reasons. It doesn't serve as a pathway into computing as it's often perceived. Uh, that their values around gaming and computing are very differently construed, and I think. You know, in the same way we try to kind of look at the intersections between gender and race for women, we also have to kind of do this for different for other groups, uh uh, um, for for male gamers, mm-hmm. but but it's really striking. I mean, for male gamers, uh, there's hardly any any demographics. I mean, they're like this black box in some way, which defines this, this person who likes game. And we do know in other areas that there is also much more diversity. Not every guy likes to play games, mm-hmm. you know, likes to be a gamer. I mean, that's uh, that's I mean a false assumption. I would put a plug in for those of us who've been <clears throat> working in esports.
3: I've been thinking
0: a lot about being in masculinity mm-hmm. and all that stuff, so mm-hmm. um, that's a little note to think that can but we've got stuff in that space. Mm-hmm. You all are amazing. Thank you. A round of applause. For you. <laughs>